At this time, kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to be reflecting on verse 19. First Thessalonians 5. And before we read God's word, let's pray for help. Lord, we need your help. Please work by your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the gift of illumination, conviction, repentance, and faith. Lord, work through this time to give us faith and to sustain our faith. Lord, please help me to preach in a manner that honors you, that really... Uh, properly represents your word, that properly teaches your people about the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to embrace your word with faith. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. First Thessalonians 5.19. This is God's word. Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. For some reason, I have a lot of very vivid memories from my early childhood. I mean when I was like three or four years old. Uh, my younger brother is three and a half years younger than I am, and I remember vividly when he was born. I don't know why I remember my childhood so vividly, especially when I can't really remember what I had for lunch yesterday. One of my more vivid memories actually pertains to riding in my parents' car. Uh, back when I was a young child, we had this great big Chevy, and it had this bench front seat. You know how cars used to have that? Um, and there was my dad in the driver's seat, my mom obviously in the passenger seat, and I was right there in between them. And I remember uh, back in those days, we had those upright car seats. You know, today they face backwards and got to be in the back seat. But I was in one of those upright car seats between my mom and my dad, and my parents bought me this little fake steering wheel that hooked onto my car seat. And I can still remember, like, pretending to drive while my dad uh, drove in reality. Well, then my brother came along, and what do you think happened? My brother got the car seat, and I got relegated to the back seat. And just like the front seat, again, we had one of those big, broad bench seats uh, covered with black vinyl, and I would slip around on that kind of like it was a water slide. Uh, I don't remember if we were supposed to wear seatbelts in those days, but uh, you can guess if we did or not. Well, fast forward to when I was 16. When I was 16, I got my driver's permit, and my dad started teaching me how to drive. So I'd sit in the driver's seat, he'd sit in the passenger seat, and he'd just kind of hold on while I tried to figure out how to maneuver a vehicle. Well, eventually I got my driver's license and my dad gave me a car of my own. And then most of the time I drove around by myself, often just kind of burning up gas going to and from McDonald's. Now, having just told you this little history of driving with my dad, what would you think if somebody said, my goodness, your dad is an indecisive character. He can't make up his mind. Sometimes he's got you in the front seat, sometimes you're in the back seat, sometimes you're in a car seat, sometimes you've got your own car. Uh, come on, why can't your dad figure out what he wants to do? If anybody thought that about my dad, we'd probably think, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand that different stages of maturity, different stages of development means different places where a person sits in the car? Obviously, you're not going to let a three-year-old drive the car around. Instead of showing indecisiveness and uncertainty, I think my story shows my dad's wisdom and love and putting me in just the right place uh, that was best for me at that stage of my development. You see? Realize something similar takes place in the plan of God. There is no doubt that God interacts with people differently at different stages of redemptive history. If you've ever read the story of the Bible, you, you know that this is the case. 
At some points, God is worshipped through animal sacrifices. Today, he's not. At some points, God is worshipped in a temple. At other points, he's not. Adam and Eve, they're given one command. Noah is given about a half a dozen commands. The Jews in the Mosaic Law are given hundreds of commands. Today, we try to live according to the law of Christ. Given all that diversity, many people look at the Bible and they think, man, God can't make up his mind, can he? God must be this really uncertain, indecisive God. He must not know what he's doing, changing things up. And to such people who think that way, we've got to lovingly say, I'm sorry, but you don't know what you're talking about. Different stages in God's plan means different ways of God interacting with people. With the progress of redemptive history, with the progress of revelation, certain elements are fulfilled and pass away. Certain ceremonies are replaced with other ceremonies. The book of Hebrews talks about the old covenant being replaced by a new and better covenant. And instead of showing God's indecisiveness, realize the changes, the transitions in redemptive history, really they display the wisdom and the love and the goodness of God. He knows exactly what is best for every stage of his plan for the human race. Well, today we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit's work changes and transitions throughout the storyline of the Bible. And I realize that this is a matter that's incredibly misunderstood, and it's resulted in a wide, wide variety of problems. Uh, Problems both in reading the Bible and in Christian experience. I mean, if believers today start seeking things that are no longer promised for today, that can result in massive disappointment. And at the same time, understanding properly how the Spirit's work changes within the Bible, uh, that is vital to proper Christian experience. Now, just to put today's message in context, we began last week this little mini-series on your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in studying through 1 Thessalonians, we've come to verse five or chapter 5, verse 19, which again says, do not quench the Spirit. The challenge, however, is that so many believers today don't know enough about the Holy Spirit to actually put that verse into practice. There's a lot of ignorance about the Holy Spirit, His person and work. There's a lot of false teaching about the Holy Spirit going around. So to help us make sense of this verse and to put it into practice, we're laying a foundation. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does He do? Last week, like Stu already mentioned, we talked about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you should seek to have a relationship. He's a person. He's not like the force in Star Wars. He's not like an idea that we just like to talk about. No, he's an actual person who thinks things, does things. Additionally, he's a divine person, meaning he is God Almighty. He's the the third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father, equal with God the Son. And also, like we talked about last week, he's a person with whom you should have a relationship. It's possible you've never even thought that thought before, but it's true. The Holy Spirit is a person, and you should try to figure out what it means to have a relationship with him. That's just a quick summary of where we went last week. And I encourage you, if you weren't here, listen to that sermon, watch that sermon. Uh, again, not because I'm such a great preacher, because I'm not, but because it would be to your benefit to understand something about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, today, like I said, we're going to be talking about ways in which the Spirit's ministry changes and transitions throughout the storyline of the Bible. And realize this is a very difficult topic to preach on. I mean, we're talking about a big, sort of deep, complex concept. And and trying to distill this all down into one sermon I found incredibly challenging. There's actually one point that even right now I'm thinking about skipping. I'm not sure. It'll kind of depend on how the next 10 minutes go to see whether or not I skip it or not. But understanding a bit about this is vital to you properly reading the Bible and properly engaging with the Holy Spirit. Again, if you think you're going to engage with the Holy Spirit like, say, Abraham did, you're going to be pretty disappointed. We need to understand a little bit of how, these, how things shift and change as we go throughout the storyline of the Bible. 
Before we get to this, let me just emphasize that I'm just going to be scratching the surface of a huge topic. Uh, so if you want to go further on this subject, talk to me at the door. I've got books that I can recommend to you. Uh, entire, I mean, big books have been written on this topic. And I'm trying to, you know, distill all of this into like a 40-minute sermon. So if you want further study on this, talk to me at the door. But what I'm going to do is to give you four ways that the Spirit's ministry is the same, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and four ways that the Spirit's ministry is different in the Old Testament and New Testament. All right, and I, I hope I don't bury you in information. Well, let's begin with these ways that the Holy Spirit has worked alike, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, what things can we look at throughout the entire Bible and see this is what the Holy Spirit's doing? Well, the first of these is actually this, the giving and sustaining of physical life. Did you know this? I didn't realize this until I started studying this, but the Bible points to the Holy Spirit as the source of human life. Of course, there's a human father and a human mother involved in the conception of every baby. We're not denying that at all. But in and behind that miracle of conception is the Holy Spirit at work. He's the giver and sustainer of life. Listen to Job 33.4. Job says this, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now, there Job actually seems to be alluding back to Genesis 2, when God made Adam in the garden. You'll remember Genesis 2.7. We read, the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You may have heard this before, but that word breath is actually the same word for spirit. So what we have is the Lord breathing his spirit into Adam, making him alive. And Job envisions something similar to that taking place in his conception. And that's why he says, the spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Listen to Psalm 104.30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. If you were to look up Psalm 104, that's not talking about, say, spiritual life, being born again. That's talking about the giving of biological life, physical life. This is why Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. I won't belabor this for the sake of time, since I've got a lot that I'd like to say, but do keep this in mind, that your conception was a work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we talked last week about when my relationship with the Holy Spirit begins. It does not begin the first time you read the Bible. It does not begin the first time you say, enter a church or hear the gospel. In fact, it began when you were conceived in your mother's womb. This, incidentally, it simply intensifies the great evil, which is abortion. I mean, abortion, it's not only the snuffing out of a human life made in the image of God. It is that, and that's a heinous sin. In addition to that, it's attacking the work of the Holy Spirit. It's grieving the Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who are Christians, that's a heinous sin that we don't want to have anything to do with. Now, thank God that is a sin that can be forgiven by Jesus' blood, but nonetheless, we do not want to diminish the evil of that sin one iota. Let me give you a second work that the Spirit's doing in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's inspiring prophets, apostles, and the authors of the Bible to communicate divine revelation. Throughout the entire Bible, the Holy Spirit was active, inspiring prophets, apostles, and authors of the Bible to communicate divine revelation. Now again, we talked about this a good bit last week, so I won't belabor it, but whoever the author of a particular book of the Bible is, God's Spirit is so controlling that person, so inspiring that person, that they only write the words of God, no more, no less. In the words of 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Like we stressed last week, what the Bible says, the Spirit says. 
What God says, Scripture says. I'd encourage you to memorize that phrase. And it doesn't matter if it's Moses or David, Peter or Paul. They're only and always writing the words of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. You ever say breathe on a mirror and see your breath appear there? I have glasses like many of you have, and I often you know, clean them probably half a dozen times a day, and I often breathe on them, and it you know, gets foggy. In a way, that's how you should look at the Bible. That is the breath of God. And if you want to engage with God and engage with the Holy Spirit, you get your nose in the Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this, incidentally, is why we can apply ancient Scripture to our lives today. And people often think, okay, you're telling me Moses wrote Genesis in like 1440 B.C.? Yeah, that's the case. How then can I apply it to my life today in 2023? I mean, he never foresaw the internet. He never foresaw cars. How in the world can we take this ancient Bible and apply it to our lives today? Well, the answer to that is because the Holy Spirit's inspiring Moses. He so controlled Moses that, get this, Moses wrote in one sense with 2023 in mind. I don't know if you feel he got that, but he did. He wrote with 2023, and not only 2023, but 2053 and 2083 in mind. And he could do that because the Spirit's at work. Is that a miracle? Of course. But if you think God can do miracles, why wouldn't he do such a miracle like that? And this is actually just what the Christian church has always believed. Quickly, a third thing that the Spirit does in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this is the one I'm thinking about condensing. It's deep. And to be totally honest, I didn't get a great night of sleep last night, so I'm not firing on all cylinders, but let's see how it goes. Here's a third thing. Validating new installments of Scripture with miraculous signs and wonders. Validating new installments of Scripture with miraculous signs and wonders. Now let me see if I can explain this briefly. Sometime in your life, I'd encourage you to get out a piece of scrap paper and create a timeline of Scripture and mark on that timeline where the miracles in Scripture occur. You know, maybe put Genesis on one side, Revelation on the other side, you know, do your classic timeline thing. What you'll discover is something rather fascinating. The miracles in Scripture don't characterize the entire storyline, but are found in clumps or bursts. Obviously, you've got a burst of miracles around Moses. You've got some miracles during, like, Joshua and, and, you know, kind of up to David. You've got a burst of miracles, obviously, with Jesus and the apostles. I skipped one. There's a bunch with Elijah and Elisha. But the miracles don't characterize like every single day of redemptive history, but are found in these bursts. Interestingly, these bursts of miracles also coincide with the giving of new books of the Bible. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that every author of the book of the book of Bibles performed miracles, nor am I saying that everybody who performed miracles wrote books of the Bible. But when it was an era when new information was give, being given, that was vindicated by miracles. Am I making sense? Now, this is not just some interesting deduction that some of us have noticed. The Bible explicitly ties signs and wonders with the giving of new books of the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples of this. In Exodus 4, we read this. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Signs, by the way, in Scripture are miraculous things. They're not like... You know, it's not like me pulling my thumb off like this. I remember doing that for my kids, and they were just amazed when they were like two. That's not what biblical signs are. Biblical signs are bona fide miracles. These miracles correspond with the word of God. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. In Acts 19.11, think about this. 
God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And this is why Paul says this. Listen to 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Their signs, their wonders, and they're designed to signify something. Now, if absolutely everybody can do these signs and wonders, they lose any signifying power. I mean, a sign only is worth something if it's actually communicating something. And as we've seen, the signs indicate that this person or people are speaking God's word. Now, think through this. Christians do not believe that today is a time for a new scripture. And for the last 2,000 years, we believe the canon has been closed. If this is not an era when we're adding new books to the Bible, we should not expect it to be a, a time when signs and wonders are commonplace. Now, let me make an important clarification. When I say that the Holy Spirit validated new installments of Scripture with miraculous signs and wonders, don't hear me saying that God can't or doesn't perform miracles today. That's not at all what I'm saying. I pray for miracles essentially every day. Uh, miracles of healing, you know, end of wars. I mean, things that really require bona fide miracles. I don't hesitate to pray for those at all. But what I am saying is that in this age, miracles are relatively rare compared to, say, the apostolic era. And additionally, I don't think that there are any miracle workers going around today. There's a difference between praying for miracles and somebody being a miracle worker, just touching you and saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I heal you. There's a big difference there. Now, again, this is an enormous topic, and I'm trying to give you a five-minute explanation with... <laughs> Not a clear mind, um, but this church has always believed and I've always taught that the Holy Spirit validated new installments of Scripture with miraculous signs and wonders. And again, if you'd like to discuss that more, feel free to talk me at the door. Let me give you a fourth and final way that the Spirit worked the same in both the Old and the New Testaments. Giving spiritually dead people a new heart or a new nature, what we often describe as being born again or regeneration. This is something that encompasses the entirety of the Bible. Now, in order for this to make sense, we should probably explain what being born again is, what regeneration is. Here's what it is. All of us are born sinners in Adam. We sinned in Adam, and we're all born with this sinful heart, this sinful, rebellious nature that loves to go our own way. I mean, you've probably heard this before, but you never need to teach a kid how to lie. You never need... Why is that? It's because we're born with this heart already alienated from God. What this means is that by nature, none of us loves God, none of us seeks God, none of us desires God, none of us treasures God. By nature, all of us are rebels. We're naturally spiritually blind, spiritually dead. We want to do our own thing, want to live according to our own laws. Basically, we want to be our own God. That's you and me by nature. Well, if that's the case, it begs the question, how then can anybody be saved? How can anyone come to believe God's word, trust in Jesus, if we're such rebels by nature? Well, the Bible's answer to that is this idea of being born again, regeneration. The Spirit convicts us of our sins. He opens our eyes, and all of a sudden we embrace the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the only way, how, the, the only way that people who are naturally rebellious can come to embrace Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.6. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hopefully you've experienced this. You know, you know Jesus and the Bible and Christianity it just seems all so dull and boring, and you're like, why on earth would I be interested in this stuff? I'd, I'd much rather watch Shark Week or something like that. But then all of a sudden, something happens, and the lights come on. 
And you go from seeing Jesus as boring and dull to all of a sudden the hope and the rejoicing of your soul. Have you experienced that? I sure hope so, because that's exactly what it means to be born again. This is why in John 3, 3, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, what does Jesus' question there imply? His question implies that Nicodemus should have known these things, and had he been more carefully reading the Bible, he would have known these things. Now, I'll admit that the Old Testament does not use this term, born again, but it does use the concept, and this is something very important to realize. Uh, just because a word's not found somewhere doesn't mean the concept's not found somewhere. And so also, being born again is all throughout the Old Testament, just different words. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 36, we read this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you might live. What is that circumcision of the heart? That really is nothing other than the New Testament experience of being born again. Joel 2, 2, uh, pardon me, 2.12 Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with weeping, with fasting, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Again, that rending of the heart, it's Old Testament terminology for being born again. Like we read in Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In light of all of this, I want to press home to you. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Not do you attend church. Lots of unbelievers attend church. Not do you enjoy reading the Bible. Again, a lot of unbelievers enjoy reading the Bible. Not do you enjoy singing hymns or you have friends in this congregation or like watching Christian TV, uh, which I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail too far. But have you been born again? Have the lights come on and all of a sudden you look to Jesus and see him as the hope and the rejoicing of your soul. Both in the Old Testament and in the New, the Holy Spirit does this vital, life-giving ministry of causing people to be born again. But again, has that taken place in your life or do you remain dead in your sins? Well, those are just four ways in which the Holy Spirit has worked the same, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me give you quickly now four ways that the Holy Spirit works differently in the New Testament. These are things that our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament did not experience. They looked forward to them, they longed for them, but somebody like Abraham, Moses, they, they did not experience these things. First would be baptism by the Holy Spirit. Baptism by the Holy Spirit. Whatever this is, this is a privilege and a blessing the Old, Old Testament saints did not know. Now, it might be helpful to define what baptism of the Holy Spirit is. It's sometimes called spirit baptism. Uh, this takes place the moment you believe on Jesus, and what it is, it's immersing you into the life of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit all, all of a sudden becomes sort of the, the world in which you live, the water in which you swim. This, incidentally, is just another reason why we need to define the word baptism properly as immersion or dunking. Uh, when we believe we're not sprinkled with the Holy Spirit, we're actually plunged into the life of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes the world in which we live. Now, in the New Testament, all believers experience this, even if you've never heard of this concept. This is like what we talked about last week. The Holy Spirit's not limited by our understanding of what he can do. So also, you may have never heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit till this morning. If you're trusting in Jesus, that happened the moment you believed. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 
For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. In the, New, pardon me, in the Old Testament, however, this was not something they experienced. This is why John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or again, Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let this sink in. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus, you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Past tense. It's an accomplished fact. Again, he is the water in which you swim, the air you breathe, the environment in which you're existing. And honestly, I think if we got this on a deep sort of experiential level, that would totally transform your behavior. I mean, just imagine, what would it look like if you went about your daily life conscious of the fact that I'm kind of permanently enveloped by the Spirit? What would it look like if you, say, work your job or talk to your family, uh, surf the Internet, manage your finances with this conscious realization, I am right now in the life of the Holy Spirit. This is the realm in which I live. I I tend to think that that would have a profound impact on your behavior. I'd ask that you, brothers and sisters, pray for this. Uh, Pray pray for me. Pray for one another that we would live with this conscious realization, uh, this continual awareness that we are living and moving and breathing in the Holy Spirit. Because again, I think think that would have a big impact on the way that we live. Quickly, here's a second ministry of the Holy Spirit that he does in the New Testament, but not the Old. And that's the indwelling by the Holy Spirit. This is a blessing that, again, say Abraham, Moses, they longed for, but we get to enjoy and that's one of the most amazing things about the Bible. I mean, we tend to take blessings and privileges for granted, and that's a shameful thing. I mean, you know, you think about this on a temporal level. We take our blessings and advantages as Americans for granted. So also, as New Testament Christians, we're taking blessings and advantages for granted that Old Testament saints longed for and would have loved to enjoy. Now, thinking about the Bible, you'll know that in the Old Testament, God's Spirit dwelt in a literal structure. Sometimes the tabernacle, but later it became the temple. A literal building, and if you wanted to engage with God's Spirit, you actually had to travel through this building, make a pilgrimage. And it was there in that temple, that tabernacle, that God's Spirit dwelt in a very manifest way above the Ark of the Covenant. Are you familiar with this? Listen to Exodus 25, 20 and following. The cherubim, those are these big golden angels, shall spread out their wings above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces toward one another, toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark shall be put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment to the people of Israel. Realize that's how God's Spirit interacted with the people of Israel for hundreds of years. It didn't matter where you lived. If you lived in Asia or Africa or up in Europe and you were a Jew and you wanted to interact with God's Spirit, you actually had a pilgrimage to the temple to interact with God because, again, that's where the Spirit dwelt. Well, fast forward to the New Testament and something fascinating takes place in the New Testament. In the New Testament, suddenly all of us who believe become temples of the Holy Spirit because all of us who believe are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, part of the reason why those verses are fascinating is because they both come from the book of 1 Corinthians. 
And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians were pretty nasty. I mean, we think some of them were visiting prostitutes, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they were eating meat offered to idols. I mean, some pretty egregious sin. And yet, nonetheless, Paul emphasizes that they are temples of the Holy Spirit, indicating that this blessing is not contingent upon how godly we are. Now, there are countless implications and applications of being the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'd encourage you to discuss these more in your growth groups or on the family dinner table. But for now, let me just give you one application of all of this, and that pertains to evangelism. Can you imagine how believers being the temple of the Holy Spirit now might impact our evangelism? Well, you might think about it this way. In the Old Testament, the Gentile nations were supposed to observe what was going on in the temple and be drawn to the Lord that way. Uh, You notice this particularly in, say, Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. Go check this out. The the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And as the Gentiles observed that and saw God at work, they'd be drawn to saving faith in him. Well, realize that's exactly how we believers are to function today. Every one of us is to be a sort of moving temple, going about this world, shining out the light of God's presence. Not in some sort of visible manifest way, but through our good works, through our speech, through our acts of love. That's how we, as, as it were, like lanterns, shine out the brightness of God's glory to our world. And again, I think if we were more conscious of that, I think we'd be more encouraged in our evangelism. If your hope is in the Lord Jesus, you are permanently indwelt by God's Spirit, making you the temple of God in this world. So let's pray for one another. Pray for me. Pray for yourself that we would be bright, shining lights in this world of God's Spirit. Quickly, a third ministry we New Testament believers enjoy that Old Testament saints did not. Giving of spiritual gifts. And giving of spiritual gifts to like every believer without exception. Now, in the Old Testament, it is true that the Holy Spirit gave certain individuals spiritual gifts. But these seem to be limited to special individuals for special tasks. So we read of Bezazel and Aholiab who were gifted to build the tabernacle. Saul was gifted to lead the people of Israel to conquer the Philistines. Samson was supernaturally gifted to, what, rip people apart with his bare hands and kill people with the jawbone of a donkey? Those are all described as gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the New Testament, however, again, we see a broadening. Every believer is now given at least one gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's probably more than that. And this includes not just, say, gifts to be pastors or elders or missionaries or evangelists, but every Christian has some gift to use for the edification of the body of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12.4. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Or again, Romans 12.4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function... So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now there's an awful lot that we can and should say about spiritual gifts, but for now let me make three quick points. First, again, every believer has at least one spiritual gift. And again, it's probably more than one, probably multiple ones. Second, these gifts differ considerably. Uh, Some are teaching and leading, but others are things like works of mercy and giving. Uh, They they vary enormously, and yet, thirdly, they're all essential. God's given you a gift on purpose. It wasn't an accident. 
He gave you that gift to help advance the Great Commission, to bless the body of Christ, to help with the furtherance of the gospel. And, and I don't want to put too heavy of a burden on you, but there is a sense in which if you're not using your spiritual gift as you could and should, uh, the church is missing out. The church might not be able to do certain things that it could otherwise be doing if you were actively using your spiritual gift. You see? So in light of all of this, all I'll say is, is this. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are, and are you using them to build up the church? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are, and are you using them to build up your church? If you need help there, again, talk to me at the door. I'd love to discuss this with you further, how we can go about discerning what our gifts are. But this comprehensive, universal giving of spiritual gifts to all believers, this is a blessing, again, we New Testament Christians enjoy that Old Testament Christians could only long for. But again, do you know what your spiritual gifts are, and are you using them to bless the church? We're almost done, but let me give you one final ministry that's unique to New Testament believers, and that's filling with the Holy Spirit. All New Testament believers can and should seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit at all times. Now, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to go with this little mini-series on the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking about talking more about this, because I do think the command not to quench the Holy Spirit is sort of embedded in this command. So I'm thinking about how can I fit these ideas together. But concisely, in the Old Testament, filling of the Holy Spirit was, again, reserved for select people, and it was usually a supernatural endowment. So again, we have Saul filled with the Holy Spirit to lead people into battle. We have Samson endowed with the Spirit to uh, tear people apart. Just thinking quickly about Samson, I was thinking about this this week. We have no reason to think that when he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit, he was particularly strong. You know, we often imagine him as some great big bodybuilder. You even see this in, like, kids' Bibles, that, you know, Samson had these gigantic muscles. Uh, that doesn't seem to be what the Scriptures teach. It seems to be that only when the Spirit came upon him in a unique way was he given that supernatural strength. So maybe he just looked like an ordinary guy. But regardless, those are described as fillings of the Holy Spirit, these empowerings for spectacular works. When we come to the New Testament, however, again, we see a fascinating change takes, take place. Now all believers can experience this ongoing, prolonged filling of the Spirit. And this ongoing, prolonged filling, it's not so much for supernatural things, like ripping people apart with your bare hands, but it's for godliness, love, and good works. Think about Ephesians 5.18 and what it says about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, I think I might say more about this in further sermons, but... Like Bennett mentioned in Sunday school, what this really means is to be so filled with Scripture, so saturated with God's Word, that you get to the point where you basically think God's thoughts after Him. I think this is very much tied with the concept of meditation on Scripture, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But when you get to the point where you've been so washed by God's Word that your mind is renewed, that you're thinking God's thoughts after Him, that's being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is key to a very rich, fruitful Christian life. So I suppose for now, again, all I'll ask you is this. How, how are you doing at pursuing being filled by the Holy Spirit? I mean, how are you doing at letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, at meditating on God's word day and night? Is this something that maybe doesn't cross your mind except on Sunday mornings when you show up here? Or is it something that you're striving to do all week long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Now in conclusion, again, I realize we've 
covered an awful lot. Um, and, and again, if you've got questions about any of this, things you'd like to further discuss, talk to me at the door. But hopefully you've seen some ways whereby the Spirit's ministry transitions between the Old Testament and the New. Certainly there are things that the Holy Spirit's doing at all times, continuing to do today, but there are these unique ministries that he does in the New Covenant era that he did not do in the Old Covenant era. All of this raises the question, though, why? I mean, why are we New Testament Christians so blessed, so privileged to have these experiences that the Old Testament saints did not experience? What explains that? Well, the Bible's answer to that is the person and work of Jesus. You see, Jesus' person, his work is so powerful, it's so effective, it's so fruitful. Now all of his believing people enjoy the Spirit without measure. Think about what Peter said in Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You can imagine it this way. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was like a mighty rushing river. And there were many individuals who experienced that river. Noah, Moses, David, Solomon, many saints who drank from that river. And yet the majority of the people of God could not access that river. But now with Jesus' death and resurrection, it's as if Jesus has broken open the floodgates. And now the Spirit is poured out on all believers. This is simply one more blessing Jesus purchased for those of us who believe. The Bible tells us that you were made to know God, to have a relationship with the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's why you exist. But the truth of the matter is you've sinned. You've broken God's laws. You've tried to live without any regard to how God made life to be lived. Again, deep down, we want to be our own God, making the laws, calling the shots, and really ignoring God. That's who we are by nature. Now, because God, our creator, is a good, wise, loving God, he will punish us for our sins. He'll pour out his wrath on us for our sins, somewhat in this life, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless our sins are forgiven, and unless we're reconciled to our creator, we will suffer eternal punishment in that real place called hell. But under those very circumstances, God, like we read in the scripture reading, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Father sent God the Son down to earth. God the Son took on human flesh, just like you and me, yet without sin. Born as a little baby, goes through all the stages of human development like we do, becomes an adult man, but he's still God the entire time. Has this relatively brief ministry of teaching, performing miracles, casting out demons. But then he dies on the cross. And why is he dying on the cross? He's dying there as a substitutionary sacrifice. Big term. What does that mean? It means he's suffering the judgment we deserve in our place. All the wrath, the punishment that I would experience in hell falls on Jesus on the cross in my place. He absorbs it entirely. He finishes the work. Three days later, God the Father raises him back from the dead to testify that what I'm telling you right now is true. He ascended to heaven, and it's from there that he poured out his Holy Spirit. And now in response, Jesus is inviting you. Whoever you are, turn from your sin, embrace me, be forgiven. Turn from your sin, embrace me, be reconciled to your creator. Turn from your sin, embrace me, and receive the Holy Spirit today. This is why Jesus came to earth, to reconcile us to God, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us his Holy Spirit. And again, we have blessings today that Old Testament saints only longed for. 
So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Trust him now. If you've never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Right where you are, turn from your sin. Embrace his loving leadership. Rely on what he has done on the cross, in the empty tomb, and be made right with God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on something that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. Today, receive this Holy Spirit who will begin the work of renewing and transforming you and making you more and more like a son. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the way that you work through your word to give us faith and to sustain our faith. And we do pray that you would use this sermon to that end. Lord, for any that don't yet know you, please use your word to draw them to yourself and to give them life. And for those of us who do know you, uh, use this time to deepen our faith, deepen our understanding of your word, and uh, to have a richer, more fruitful experience with the Holy Spirit. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.